it's never really a good sign when you go to preach and your kids walk out on you. So, but thank you. It's, um, it's an honor to be able to come down and preach at Crosswind this morning, and especially in this weather. Um, what's interesting about um, preaching this morning is when I was first asked to fill in for Jordan, Jordan actually told me he was going to be gone. So I expected him gone this morning, and then I find out now that he's here. So I almost feel like this is a little bit of a, like an on-the-job interview for the new guy on staff. So I guess we'll see how this morning goes and, and uh, if I'm ever asked to fill pulpit again. So um, the other thing that's kind of interesting this morning is that this will be the first time that I've shared a message or a study or anything to a primarily English-speaking crowd in quite a long time. And some people think it's really hard working with an interpreter, um, which is all I've done really in, in multiple different languages. It's actually a little easier because about every three sentences you get to look down at your manuscript and rethink about what you want to say. So, um, so I'm going to try this thing in English and, and we'll see how it works. So, um, but this morning um, we're going to continue on the study of in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we've already been in it for a few weeks now and, we, and we're going to continue on. And so far, we've seen uh, some of the early stages of Mark's min- or of uh, Jesus' ministry. Um, we've seen how he called the apostles. Um, we saw how he often taught in parables. And, and Mark really does a great job of just slowly revealing um, not only the authority, but also the identity of, of Jesus over time. And so this morning, we're going to look at an event that really was very, a very dramatic event that exposed the faith of the disciples. Um, but it's also going to cause us to question, who do we say is this person of Jesus Christ? So this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, if you want to open your Bibles with me. Um, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 35. And you know how hard it is to stand up here and not want to tell people in Creole where you're going? <laughs> so it's not chapter cot, it's, it's chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 35, if you want to read along with me. So it says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Let me pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering this morning, even amongst this weather that we have, Lord. We thank you that we can gather in your name. We can open up your word, Lord. So I just pray for um, open minds and hearts as we look at your word this morning, Lord. And I just pray that you'll use me merely as an instrument, as a tool to convey your word. Lord, I pray earnestly this morning that these not be my words, but they be yours. In Lord's name, amen. So this morning, as we unpack this piece of scripture, I'm going to really um, look at two or three different segments. First, we're going to set the scene um, for really what's going to be a dramatic event that's going to 
test and really expose the faith of the disciples. Uh, Second, we're going to see how Jesus really is the calming force when we have storms in our life. And then lastly, we're going to be challenged. We're going to challenge you a little bit to really ask a central question that's in this passage, and that's, who then is this person that we identify as Jesus Christ? So first, looking at verses 35 and 37, we're going to set the scene for what initially I think seemed like an ordinary night on the sea to the disciples, but really turned into a dramatic event. Um, Where it says, on that day when evening came, looking back at the previous sections, when it says, on that day when evening had come, it really refers to the same day that Jesus had been teaching um, the parables to this massive crowd, as we've talked about in previous weeks. And, and we know that the crowd had actually become so large that Jesus had resulted to preaching from a boat just off of the shore um, as to avoid being crushed by the massive amount of people. So more than likely, this had been a really long and exhausting day, and I'm sure it had been pretty strenuous um, teaching. As you can imagine, instructing and teaching all day long and speaking all day long can be pretty exhausting. Um, but Jesus had also done this from a boat in the water and more than likely under the heat of the sun all day. So he turns and he says to his disciples, let, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Now, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on these and they seem like minor details, but I think they're really going to tell you a lot about what's going to happen. And it's going to tell you a lot about Jesus and, and what's soon going to take place. And the first thing I want to highlight here, and we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, um, But notice here that when they start taking this journey across the lake, it's Jesus is the one who initiated this trip across the lake. So like I said, we're going to talk on that a little bit later, but log that into your memory. Um, And at this time, I'm guessing that he was pretty tired, exhausted. It had been a long day of teaching, and and he just really needed a part, needed some rest. And so it says the disciples took him with them in the boat just as he was. And, And this presumably means that Jesus did not go ashore. He was avoiding the crowds, and so they actually entered the boat with him, and so they left in the exact same boat that he had been teaching all day and had set off. And the disciples, many of them were experienced fishermen, they would have taken command of the boat and they would have set sail. Now, as we get into this passage a little bit, I want to kind of exit from the Bible a little bit, and I want to talk about some of the background details. Now, did we get the pictures up there? Okay, Um, so if you want to show the first picture, um, that's there. There's a couple. Oh, we don't have them? Okay, that's fine. Um, So what I want to talk about, first of all, is the boat that they were in. You know, Scripture doesn't really tell us much about the boat. It doesn't tell us the size. It doesn't tell the length. It doesn't really tell us much about the boat. But what's interesting is that back in 1986, if you've heard of this before, um, the water levels of the Sea of Galilee were really low, and they found something sticking out of the mud. And so they went and they dug this around this, and they, they actually um, pulled out of the mud an old fishing boat. And so they dated it the best they could, and they actually found out that this boat originated around the time of Jesus. And so we can get a good idea of what those fishing boats were like at this time based on this finding. And the archaeologists have actually named this as the Jesus boat, and it's currently sitting in a museum right off of the, the shore of the Galilee. So when you're looking at this, I'm, I'm going to kind of, and someone saw me stepping off this earlier, so now you'll know what I'm talking about. So the boat is roughly 27 foot long. So I stepped this off this morning, and it's basically, if I start on this side, 
and I go almost all the way, you'll have to trust me on this one, I use my feet, and I go all the way here, this is roughly 27 foot. So when you're envisioning this scene that we're in, we're thinking of a boat that's roughly this long. It also sits about eight foot wide. It's had four foot, roughly four foot sides on it. It would have had four rowing stations, two on each side, and it would have had a mast for a sail. So this is the type of boat, and this is the size of boat that we're thinking of. And this is um, very reminiscent to what they would have used on this night during the time of Jesus, because boats like this could hold approximately 15 people. So it would have been big enough to hold Jesus and the disciples. Now, the other thing that I think is very important is the Sea of Galilee itself. Um, the sea is, is really interesting because it's got some great geography around it. The sea actually sits 700 foot below sea level, and it's the lowest freshwater body of water um, on the planet. And we commonly refer to it as a sea. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. It's really more like a big lake. From north to south is kind of the long version of it. It's about 13 miles from north to south. Width wide, it's about seven and a half miles from east to west. So we're not really talking a sea. We're talking more of a, of a big lake. Um, and, and so people might think the Dead Sea. Well, the Dead Sea actually sits lower, but the Dead Sea is a mineral lake. It's not a fresh body water um, that we're talking about. So what's interesting here about the Sea of Galilee is it sits, like I said, 700 feet below sea level, but everything around it is mostly hills and mountains. So on the east side, and I have this really nice graphic, but I'll explain it to you, so hopefully you can, you can mentally pick this up. Oh, don't shake your head. It's okay. Um, so on the east side is mainly a mountain range. It sits about 3,000 foot above sea level. To the north, northeast is where Mount Hermon is, which is about 9,200 feet above sea level. And that really, from going from the Dead Sea to Mount Hermon, is only roughly 30 miles. So you're talking 10,000 feet of elevation change in a matter of uh, almost from here, well, not quite here to Spirit Lake, but if you can imagine a, a sharp decrease there. Um, what also is interesting is on the west side is the Mediterranean Sea, and that's got all kinds of hills and valleys there as well. So what happens here, and this is really going to set the stage for what I'm going to talk about, is you have all this cold air that comes rushing over the mountains, and it descends now into the, the Galilean area, you have all this moisture-rich air that's coming from the Mediterranean Sea into this area. But like I said, the Sea of Galilee sits low, so it heats up during the day from the sun. So you have all this warm air that rises. Well, if you know anything about weather, you mix these three together in the late afternoon, early evening, and it can produce some pretty spontaneous and, and pretty amazing um, storms. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here because we're going to walk into verse 37 and it's going to say, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So like I said, this geography of this area has been like this for a long time. So a lot of these fishermen would have been used to everything coming in and, and creating these storms. But what's interesting here is when we look in that scripture, the word that it used here for windstorm in Greek, it actually means like a whirlwind or even like a hurricane. So we're really talking about an intense storm, much greater than what they were used to, and we're talking about winds that are talking 70 mile per hour winds. So we're talking a great windstorm. And in the Matthew, in his gospel, he actually uses the word to describe the storm as seismos. And what that literally means is earth shaking. 
So we're talking about a, a storm where the water was almost like it was shaking violently. Um, and this is much greater than what these guys are used to. And so furthermore, when you look into this and it says the waves were breaking into the boat, it means that the waves were so strong that they're coming up over the sides of the boat and they're actually filling the boat with water. There's no chance of bailing water at this point because the waves are coming over very strongly. And now if you remember, so you, you picture, picture this big giant storm, all these waves and everything else. Now remember, this is at night because they had been teaching all day. Jesus had been teaching all day. So we're talking in the dark of the night. So you've got this great storm going on, almost like a hurricane. We're talking 10-foot-plus waves breaking over, crashing into the boat, filling it with water, all in the dark. And so you can just imagine as these disciples are standing there, they're just absolutely terrified of what's going on. And seven of the 12, and this is a big note, seven of the 12 actually were experienced fishermen who had been on the sea, raised on the Sea of Galilee, worked on the Sea of Galilee, so they would have been familiar with this. They would have been familiar with this event, but it actually talks about them being terrified. So this was a much bigger storm than these guys were even used to, and they were actually frightened for their lives. And now what's interesting is the scripture turns to Jesus. And so when we put our, our attention on Jesus, what does it say he's doing? says he's in the stern, asleep on a cushion. We're talking this seismic storm, and Jesus is asleep. Really? He's sleeping through this. These guys are in the midst of a dangerous, violent storm that's threatened their lives. Waves are crashing into the boat, breaking, filling with water, threatening to sink the boat, and the disciples think that they're facing their ultimate demise, and they look at Jesus and he's asleep. So now think about this. Intense storm. Uh, disciples crazy, afraid. Jesus sleeping. Okay, you got all this stuff going on? Okay, we've set the scene now. So let's go to the second point that we're going to get into. And we're going to talk about this is a great calm during the storm. So do you think Jesus knew that this storm was coming? Of course he knew that this storm was coming. See, he had been teaching all day, and this storm was nothing more than on the teaching curriculum for the day. This storm was going to help the disciples understand a very vital lesson that they probably hadn't comprehended yet, that Jesus can be trusted even during the great storms of our life. But before we discuss the storm, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus being asleep. Because when we think about him being asleep, it really reveals two important things about Jesus at this time. First, is that Jesus was tired and he needed rest. And this really is a very profound sign of his humanity. See, Jesus at this time had a body just like ours. He could hunger and he could thirst and he could feel pain. He got exhausted and it shows here that he needed sleep to recharge his batteries just like we did, or like we do. See, he had a body just like us. In Psalm 121, it says, God does not slumber, but here it talks about Jesus sleeping as a human. And the Gospel of Mark's really interesting because it's the only place that specifically references Jesus sleeping. But we know that he lived every single day with a body just like ours. 
And this really shows his human side. The second thing I think it shows us is that he slept because he had a faith in his father that the father would carry him through a storm. He knew that God would preserve him through this storm, and he had confidence um, in, in really the providential care of the Lord. He lived every day depending on his father, and he did have so much confidence that he could sleep a real sleep knowing that he was safe in the will of God. You know, sleeping in a crisis sometimes is not really the response that you want, but here I really think it shows a deep faith that he had during this storm, that everything was going to be taken care of. You know, Jesus knew trials of man because he experienced them, and he understood the bodily weaknesses because he felt them as well. See, he understood our humanity through his and could understand that we needed to show faith during these struggles. And I just really think this is kind of interesting when you put it in the context of our own lives. Because when we're facing great struggles or we have a big stress in life, and someone asks you how you're doing, what's the first thing you tell them? I haven't slept. Isn't that right? I haven't slept all night. I haven't slept in days. Isn't that a classic response? I haven't slept. It's because we toss and we turn in our worry all night long because we can't shut our brains off. We do this stuff. We can't get good night's rest. And so imagine Jesus having such a deep faith in God that surpassed this storm and this situation that he slept soundly, and we can sleep soundly as well. See, Jesus was not awake worrying about the storm. He was peacefully at rest in the arms of the Lord. And so when we see this, we really see it as a faith of Jesus that he had in God. But the disciples obviously did not. You know, they, they saw it as a lack of concern. And so let's look at verse 38. It says, And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Which can literally be translated as saying, do you not care about us? You know, this is almost a rebuke from the disciples back to Jesus in a very accusatory statement saying, you know, we're standing here, we're struggling, and it appears that you don't even care that we might die right here in this deep and watery grave. And they're asking him, do you even notice that our lives, our lives are in danger? Essentially, they're saying, do you care so, so little that we face our ultimate, ultimate demise and all you can do is sleep? See, unfortunately, in times of distress, and I think we all do it, even the most rational person can say things that they would later regret. Don't you think they later regretted looking at Jesus and say, do you not care about us? But how many times in our own life have we been tempted to imitate the, faith, the faithlessness of the disciples? How many times have we looked at God and said, do you not care about what's going on with me right now? Have you heard what they've said? Have you seen what's going on? Do you know what I'm facing? Do you not care about me? Have you ever said something like this? Where are you, God? I'm facing this right now. Where are you? Have you ever said that? Because I can tell you I've said it plenty. You know, you try to live down in Haiti in a third world country and you battle those battles and you don't know where God's at. You sit there and you say, God, look at what's going through. Where are you at? And we know that he's with us, though. But suffering can be very disorientating, can it not? 
our belief system gets stretched so far that we become very irrational in our thinking at those times. And we struggle with the mental aspects of affliction, and, and we process the information so different. You know, look at the disciples. They testified daily to the work of Christ. They loved Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They left everything that they had for Jesus, and they were not ashamed of the message that Jesus taught. But in this time of affliction, their faith was tested and it eroded. And this scenario really cuts straight to our own hearts because every one of us who have tried to live a life of faith has felt like this at times. Everything's going wrong. The storm is amongst us. The boat seems like it's sinking. And we look and it seems like God is absent or silent or even asleep. You know, if he loved us, why would we be going through this? But the greatest um, danger is not the storm that's around us. The greatest danger we have is the unbelief in our own heart. Our greatest problem is our doubts, not the things that are happening around us. You know, storms, whether we like them or not, are often essential to our spiritual development because without these difficulties and afflictions and, and situations and sometimes even colossal failures, we may never grow spiritually and learn to lean on the strength of a father in heaven. You know, some of our greatest lessons come through our afflictions. And in fact, without adversity, we may end up spiritually immature uh, people who really just rely on ourselves and our own knowledge and our own understanding. And there's, there's a saying, and I'm sure we've all said it, and maybe you'll disagree with me when I say that, but there's a saying that says, God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard this? God will never give you more than you can handle. And I'm going to tell you, I think that statement's false because I believe that God does give you more than you can handle because if we're not ever given more than we can handle, how do we learn to rely on the strength and, and sovereignty of a God? You know, if we're only given enough that we can handle, then we always rely on ourselves because we can get through it. But when we're given more than we can handle, that's when we find out that we lean on the strength of God through our own weaknesses. And so I, I really think that's a huge point. Don't think that God only gives you what you can handle. He does give you more than you can handle because we know that it's not more than what he can handle. And that's why we lean on him. And he never promised that we would not face affliction. He never promised. He loves us way too much to make that promise to us. But it's through these afflictions that we learn these precious lessons that we may have never learned without them. And he shows us through this our weaknesses. But he, what he does is he pulls us back to that throne of grace. And what he does is he teaches us not to depend on ourselves or depend on this world, but yet to also look towards heaven and look to being with him. So this storm was essential to the growth of the disciples. That's why I say it was on the teaching curriculum for the day. It was essential for them because what they learned is that there's nothing that can get, be against them with God. And so they can sleep and rest amongst the storm as well, just as Jesus was in that boat. So let's move to the next verse, verse 39. And it says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to see, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
See, it says peace, be still. Some versions will say quiet, be still. But that's it. Three words in our English language. Three words. Jesus spoke three words to a hurricane, and immediately the wind ceased and the sea was calm. There was no movement. You know, a lot of times you think water, well, you take away and the water kind of settles. No, we're talking instantly. The, wa- the winds were gone. There was no movement, no commotion on the water. It was as smooth as glass. Have you th- seen water like that where you can actually see your reflection? Envision that. Like that. Boom. It was down. Everything went almost eerily quiet. It was almost like God had just taken away the wind and had just pushed his hand down on the sea and said, be still. And I say it's three words in English because what's interesting here is be still in Greek is only one word. And it means put to silence or to muzzle. Can you imagine something speaking and you just muzzle it? Just like that, instantly. And it means to remain quiet. And that is what Jesus did. He silenced the storm merely by speaking to it. He did not call on a higher power. So note that. He didn't say, in, in, in God's name, I tell you this. And he didn't say, hey, I'm going to pray about it and we'll see what happens. He did it himself. And he showed his authority over nature in that second. The Lord spoke, and his creation responded. The book of Hebrews says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or the NIV says, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We witness here Jesus' control over all of creation merely by speaking to it. The elements of nature knew their master, and they submitted immediately like obedient servants. Looking at Colossians, Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. See, he's the creator of all things, and he holds dominion over all of creation. And so Jesus, in that second, put all of creation to rest merely by speaking to it. So this great windstorm, this great hurricane, was replaced by this great calm. But notice, and this is an important point, he did not calm the storm when the disciples wanted it calm. He calmed the storm on his timing. So remember back when I said, please note that he he is the one who initiated the crossing into the sea, right? He led them into the storm. He leads us into storms for his reason. And he calms these storms on his timing. Not when we want them, We don't avoid the storms. He led them into the storm and he calmed it on his timing. And so we have to remember that, yes, he is the calming force in our storms and he will calm them on his timing. And here's the the important aspect of it is that it may be in this life and it may not. Sometimes the calming of our storms may happen today, may happen tomorrow, may happen sometime next year. Sometimes the calming of our storms comes in eternity in heaven. But that's based on his timing and not ours. 
but we can still rest in the storms knowing that he's with us all the time. So after he calms the storms, he turns to his disciples who are more than likely standing at awe. Can you imagine standing there, being in this hurricane, and all of a sudden he says three words, two in Greek? You know, really, you know, it's written in Greek, but you understand what I'm saying. Just like that, and it's boom. Can you imagine standing there now in awe, and he turns to look at you and says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He was in the boat with them, so what did they have to fear? They could see that Jesus was perfectly at peace, that he was asleep during this violent storm. But instead of being encouraged, they actually were accusatory to him for not caring about them. They did not look to him for assistance. They actually turned to him in condemnation. But Jesus was sleeping with full faith that he was in the divine will of God. Because in Psalm 4, I really like this. In peace, it says, Psalm 4 states, In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So Jesus was lying down. He was sleeping because in the Psalms, it tells him that the Lord will have him dwell in safety. And so I think it's interesting that it says still, which is really not yet. You know, everything that they had already heard, they had seen, and they had experienced with Christ, they still were afraid of the storm, even though they were with him. And so I think this word, still, it really must not escape us as we pursue God, knowing that our life experiences are really sent to us for a purpose, and that purpose is to establish, mature, and secure our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. You know, many times faith and fear are opposites. You know, fear can really overcome our faith. But the beauty of it is that faith can actually dispel or dismiss our fear. Because fear is endemic to our human situation. We fear all the time. And so maybe even today, some of us are probably maybe sitting here with a fearful situation. And they're thinking there appears no solution to this. But I think what we need to understand is that Jesus wants us to develop our faith through these storms. And he wants to know, he wants us to know that he's in that boat with you right now. And so exercise your faith this morning and, and lay down your fear. Because Jesus is telling you, there's no reason to panic that that boat is going to sink. We just place our faith in him and we can rest peacefully. And that's a lot to ask, place our faith in him. So who is this person that we're placing our faith in? Well, that's going to lead us to our third point, and that's the identity of Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 41, if you're still following along. And they were fill, it says, And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, one thing I want to make sure we're very, very careful of this morning is that we don't make this passage about us, and we don't make this passage only about our storms. And so I know I've spent a lot of time this morning, and we've talked about our storms and how Jesus is the, the calming force, but I don't think I've done my job if we walk out of here this morning and we put ourselves in the middle of this passage. So yes, we do encounter storms in life. And yes, it is true that Jesus is with us during these times. And yes, it's true that he cares deeply for us and has complete control of all our trials. 
But we have to remember this is not our story. This is not our story. This story, this Bible, is really the story of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. So we must take great care when we look at a passage like this that we don't make this about our life. We don't make it about our struggles and our trials and our afflictions and our storm and put ourselves in the middle of this story. Because really when it comes down to it, this conclusion at the very end, how does it end? It ends with the disciples asking themselves, who then is this? So the focus on this, passion, this passage is really not on us. The focus on this and how it concludes is on Jesus. It really points to him as not only Jesus, Son of God, but it really shows that Jesus is God. It says they were filled with great fear. And it's interesting when you study this, because there's a lot of differing opinions on what fear means here. Does fear mean afraid and terrified? Or does fear really mean more of a amazed, astonished, or even an awestruck um, by, by what they saw? Now, I'll tell you, what I believe a great fear of this is, is that this is just a complete reverence of the person that they find in the boat with them. They're sitting there asking them, themselves, who then is this person that does only what God can do? See, they knew the Old Testament, and they knew that God was in control of storms, and they had just witnessed Jesus do what they had already studied, always studied that God could do. So if you, if, you, if you want to open up, I'm going to go to Psalms. We're going to start at Psalm 89 and then Psalm 107. So I'll give you a couple seconds if you're looking it up. So Psalm 89. Psalm 89, we're going to go to verse 9. And it says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So they knew this from their Old Testament readings that it talks about that God rules the raging of the seas, and when the waves rise, that God would still them. And now they just witnessed it. So let's turn to 107, a little bit longer reading here. Um, so 107, I'm going to start in verse 23. So Psalm 107, verse 23. It says, Some went down to the, to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Imagine, waves that went to the heaven and down to the depths, and it caused them to stagger like drunken men. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders." You know, this Psalm 107, it really talks about God stirring up the seas 
that causes sailors to melt in fear and cry out to God in times of distress. Sounds a lot like the situation we just read about in Mark, doesn't it? And so they saw how, how God would still the waters and hush the seas. And now Jesus had just shown them the exact same power and authority that they had read about in the Psalms. So here is a man, one of their own, a man of flesh and blood. He hungers, he thirsts, he tires out and he needs sleep. But he's also fully divine and exhibits the traits that only God has. He surely is more than just a man. And the, the disciples began to realize that he was greater than even they had originally imagined. That it took God to change nature. And they had just watched Jesus command the elements of weather with three simple words. Peace, be still. And it was the awe of men who understood that they now were in the presence of the Lord. And so this passage is not merely about how Jesus handles our storms and how he's with us during our storms. Its purpose really is to show us that Jesus Christ is God. I like in Exodus 14, as Moses is leading his people and, and through the Red Sea, it says, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. So the question now in front of the disciples is their fear going to let them trust him as Lord? So who then is this? That's the question that we all need to ask ourselves this morning as we stand in the presence of God. That the identity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as really the person who died on a cross as payment for our sins, who is this is paramount to our faith. In storms and out of storms, we trust in the promises of eternity that comes only through the faith in Jesus Christ. So if you ever want to ask, God, I'm in the middle of this, do you really care for us? Of course he cares. He cares so much that he sent his son to die on a cross so that when we believe, we have eternal life. You want to see how much he cares for us? See the blood on the cross. That shows how much he cares for us in our storms. So who then is this? He's Jesus Christ, Son of God. He's fully human, and he's fully God, and he's our Lord and our Savior. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.